On today's podcast, I'm joined by Jaden Quinlan and Jacob Morrow from our Ballistic Engineering Department. And the topic at hand is all things Doppler radar. Now, we rewind the clocks back about 500 years ago when the study of ballistics really started. Now, from there, we hit all the milestones until we get to right around World War II when the use of radar for velocity and time tracking really came into prevalency. And we finish up talking about the Doppler radar, how it works, and how it's used. Now, this is an incredibly technically deep podcast, so if you want to take notes, go ahead and do that. It was incredibly educational. I learned a ton, and it's great to have these guys give us all this information. If you've ever been interested in learning how a Doppler radar works and how we use it to help develop bullets, then sit back and enjoy. I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I'm your host, Seth Swerzik, and I'm pretty excited about the topic at hand today and the guests that we have on the show. Now, if you're a fan or an enthusiast of ballistics, you're going to find this incredibly interesting. And one thing that I've tried to do with this podcast is keep it as digestible as possible uh, as we get into some of the technical details. And this one's going to be pretty technically heavy, but I think it's really going to lay a nice bedrock to build off of as we continue uh, to talk about ballistics in subsequent podcasts. So please join me in welcoming across the table. We have senior ballistician Jaden Quinlan and ballistic engineering technician Jacob Morrow. Guys, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, our pleasure. Glad to join you. So like I'd mentioned in the in the intro there, this is can be pretty technically deep and and you know this rabbit hole goes deep. However, we can break it down to a fundamental standpoint and and keep it conversational. And I know you guys have an incredibly, just, yeah, for lack of a better term, a really deep understanding of how this stuff works and what it is in the history. And because of that incredible knowledge, you can, you can make it digestible for a guy like me. So if we're going to talk about ballistics, we should probably talk about, just like every other podcast, we should start at the beginning. So from a ballistic standpoint, what does the beginning even look like? Um, velocity is is kind of the beginning so that's a number we all use and we're all concerned with and and concentrate on a lot in ballistics right especially if you shoot long range at all or or even you know just in general and everything you're you're going to encounter velocity when you're looking at the world of ballistics that that's just there um but i don't think a lot of us really think about where where are we in velocity and where were we in velocity and 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 kind of painting that entire picture, that narrative story of where we came from to appreciate where we are today and, and what that means about what we use velocity for today. Okay. So maybe before we get in back into that, at a broad level, why is velocity hypercritical? What is, why is that the entire study of external ballistics is really boiled down to velocity? Well, um, because it's all about time exposure. So how long is the bullet exposed to the effects of gravity? How long is it mm-hmm. exposed to the effects of wind? It's all about time, right? The more time it's exposed to gravity, the more the bullet's going to drop, or the more uh, time exposure to the wind, the more deflection you'll see due to wind. So it's really all about time, but what 
what dictates that time is the velocity. The okay. faster it goes, the less time it's going to spend in a certain, say, range block, right? In, yep. in a 200-yard distance, if it's going faster, it's going to spend less time covering those 200 yards uh, than it would if it was going slower. So it's time is what matters, but velocity is the driver. Okay, understood. So now we're we're going back to the history, and you said you were going to paint a picture of maybe of like a reference yeah. of, of where we're at in the world of the study of velocity. Yeah, and and as, a, as somebody that is... The, my 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 personal passion is ballistics. It's been that for a really long time. I mean, I've been in love with the concept and 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 the pursuit of learning ballistics for for a long time. I think this part is super cool. Um, so so this whole this whole time and and velocity problem is is young in consideration of all of time. I mean, we're we're at about five hundred ish years in ballistics. Now, some are going to argue, oh yes, this goes way back even before then, but. But I would say the meat and potatoes that has a, a direct line of descendants, uh, where we are today, a direct line of descendants, this comes back to about 500 years ago. Okay. So um, you had this guy named uh, Tartaglia in Italy that was tasked with trying to figure out how far a bullet would go based on shooting it at different angles. Like what angle can I point the gun at to get this bullet to go as far as possibly can? So this is the early 1500s. And he kind of figures out that, that bullets have a curved trajectory. He's kind of, he kind of observes that, but it's not like a groundbreaking thing and, and time goes on, but he's kind of the, the, the first finger on the pulse of something. Oh, wow. Then you get into like the late 1500s, early 1600s, and this is where Galileo comes in. And we've all probably heard Galileo, you know, when we Absolutely. were in school yep. and, and his stuff. And what Galileo kind of did was figure out that if he took two uh, spheres of the same, you know, size uh, and shape, but they weighed differently, that if you dropped them from the same height, they hit the ground at a different point. To us today, that's like, duh, you know, that's a trivial <laughs> trivial point. Right. That's a big deal, you know, back then. Um, so you, you get past what Galileo kind of did, and then you get into Sir Isaac Newton, and, and some of his work obviously kind of defined the, 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 the equations or, or, or basis of motion of, of objects, you know. Um, but Newton also started to figure out that if you change the shape, of kind of what Galileo was doing when he's just dropping objects. If you change the shape of them, that will change how fast they hit the ground or not. So you get through Newton. Again, we all know about Newton yeah. from school. Right? And groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, then you get in, so this is kind of, these are, this is the era of, of observation, the 1500s into, you know, somewhere in the era of 16 to 1700s is kind of the era of observation. These guys see things happening, but they're not really like, measuring things in a way that they can predict or 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 do stuff like that so when you get to the early 1700s um, a guy named benjamin robbins comes along and he invents what's called the ballistic pendulum and so this is like the first measurement tool that really hits the scene in ballistics this is this is what starts to give us the ability to quantify things to measure okay. them and and quantify them so what a ballistic pendulum is is if you envision like a big block of wood um, say even like a log that you're going to throw on a campfire or something. If you know how much that wood weighs and you suspend it from something that it can swing, let's say a string or a, or a arm or something like that, where you can push that wood around and it's going to move, right? Um, and you shoot a bullet into it. If you know how much the bullet weighs and you know how much that block of wood weighed and you can measure how far that block of wood swung after oh. the bullet hit it and went into it, you can back calculate how fast that bullet had to be going 
to deposit that much X energy into the block of wood, making it move X amount. Wow. Right. So yeah. it's cool. So that also I think is super cool. So yeah. that's like, you know, the mid 1700s. So now we're what, uh, two, 270 years ago. That's not that long. I mean, that's. No. Yeah, if you think that's a long time ago, zoom out a little bit. Yeah, that's yeah. three grandpas ago. You know, <laughs> that's really not that long ago. So so then you go from, you know, the mid-1700s with that ballistic pendulum, you start to get into kind of the age of, of uh, uh, chronographs as, as an umbrella term. And we all hear the word chronograph, and we think of a modern sky screen, infrared light-based uh, chronograph. Um, but back in the in the in the you know, 17, 1800s, the chronograph started with like a, they would take two discs. So if you think of like the uh, axle of a vehicle, like the, mm-hmm. the back end of a four wheel drive truck, right? Um, if you took the, t- if you took the tires and you spun them and they spun it, let's say that the axle was all connected and those two tires spun at the, at the same rate. If you shot a bullet through one tire and it travels the gap between the two tires and then penetrates through the second tire. Well, as it, as it passes through the first tire, those tires continue to rotate. So there's some rotation happening while the bullets trans transitioning from the first tire to the second tire. So it's going to hit that second tire at a different point. Well, if you can index marks those things and they're, the oh. tires are rotating at a constant rate, you can determine what, how long it took, right? Cause the yeah. tire rotates at a constant rate, how long it took the bullet to traverse that X distance between the tires and you can calculate a velocity from that. Wow. So that was some of the really early chronographs. Yeah. And that uh, goes right back to what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast was time and velocity. Yeah. It's all about, yep. The time and velocity. So velocity is, is distance over time. Right. Um, so those were the early chronographs and then, and then you see the advancement of electronics and stuff like that, where they could start to instrument them with, um, with a circuit, right? So they would, they would essentially have a, a circuit that is complete, uh, and the bullet would come through and break that circuit. So like hit the, hit a wire or something to cut the circuit short and you could start and stop a clock with that. So you, you, you see that transition. Um, then you get all the way into modern day skyscreen stuff, but there's an important thing that happened in there in that early chronograph era. And that's when, uh, you know, the observation that, that bullets slow down at different times was really starting to be uncovered. So what that means is if bullet A slows down really, really fast, its exposure to gravity is going to be longer over the same distance, let's say uh, 600 yards. If bullet A takes one second to get to 600 yards, it was exposed to gravity for one second. If bullet B takes a half a second to get to 600 yards, it was exposed for half a second. So you can see there, you're going to have a difference in trajectory, right? Because mm-hmm. of the exposure to gravity due to time. So in the in the mid to late 1800s and, and working into the 1900s, uh, mostly from like a warfare standpoint, you started to see... Uh, a real concentration on the fact that if we change the bullet diameter and shape and weight, it changes how fast it slows down. So, you know, kind of the whole goal or, or uh, purpose of warfare is to, is to be able to beat the other side and, and have the least risk to you, right? Well, one of the best ways to do that is to put as much distance between you and the enemy as you can. So there's been this, this age old, uh, progression of trying to extend effective ranges, right? Because if I can keep my team out of the out of the 
uh, effective range of the enemy, but my they are within my effective range, then I can I can impact them and they can't hurt my guys. It's, that's the the best situation. So with that, the uh, you saw a bunch of different stuff happening in Germany. Um, the Gavre commission, uh, uh, commission in France. So these guys are all doing these studies on different bullets and stuff. And this is where you start to see the G1BC, which we'll talk about in later podcasts when we kind of go in on BC. Uh, you see the creation of the G1, the Ingalls tables. Ingalls was a was an army officer who kind of created this table that would that would predict how fast a bullet would slow down compared to a standard. You see the G7 start to come out. Um, so. That era is where they figured out, well, if we take one bullet and we measure it in all these different distances and times to quantify how fast it slows down, that's a lot of work. That's labor-intensive work, right? Like if we're using a ballistic pendulum and you're going to go shoot <laughs> that block of wood and then go measure it and do all those calculations for every you know, 10 yards for oh, thousands wow. of yards, it would yeah. take you forever to try to get that information. So, so they figured out that, okay, well, let's... Let's spend that time and labor and do that once on one bullet. And then there's enough similarities in the shapes of the bullets and some of the other characteristics that we can just take this bullet over here that's similar. It's not the same. It's similar. And we can just scale it to it. And that was good enough to predict what that bullet would use. So that's kind of the cool story to me. I mean, growing up as a kid in, in school, you hear about Galileo and, and Newton and these guys and you think, well, that that's a that's a that's so far away from a time perspective that I can't even quantify it, right? It makes no sense to me, but it's really not that old. Like yeah. this field of ballistics is, is, is relatively new when you think about it. So to me, that's super cool, but I think it's good to appreciate that before we talk about kind of the modern era, let's call it the early 19, early to mid 1940s on to where we are today. Sure. So the World War II to present, and there's been some periods, you know, dating back 500 years ago to present, there's been periods where there's been just drastic changes and a ton of new information is uncovered and it's used in different ways. And then there's kind of a lull in the action, if you will. And then, yeah, in circa World War II to, to present, there's been a, uh, a lull, you know, it was really active, then kind of a lull. And then now in 2022, going back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was just, it's been on, it's been on rockets since then. Yeah. And what we've, what we've seen, you know, that chronograph thing, the chronographs just kept getting better and better and better. And then to throw this to Jacob here in a second, you see, you see the shift from like a chronograph that measures something at, at one point, right? Like a, like a skyscreen chronograph that we know today, yep. it takes a data point right there. That's it. It doesn't know anything that the bullet did before or after or anything. It's just that one little part where the chronograph is, is what you measured. That's where we were then. And then, you know, I would say what around World War II time frame, you see radar technology come in and yeah. we're going to hammer, you know, we'll hammer on what radar is and all that here in a second, because that's, that's the meat and potatoes of today, but that's that, that evolution. So I don't know, maybe tie, tie the radar into yeah. that. So it yeah. sounds like it's about to go from, you collect a point right here to tracking a bullet and capturing points at several points downrange. So yep. what's it? Yeah, Jacob, go on. What's what do we got here with the Doppler radar or radar in general? Well, there's there's a ton about radars. I mean, radars uh, at the very beginning of it all, kind of 1890 to 1930, right before World War II, is kind of when people started to figure out that you can use radio waves to detect things. And World War II is really the big boom of radar technology, which radar itself stands for 
radio detection and ranging. Mm. So it uses radio waves to detect a target and range it by definition, whether that's through a couple different processes. But basically, uh, it sends a signal out. It starts a top uh, a stopwatch, and then when it receives that same signal, then you know how long that took because the speed of light, and that's how you get your range. So, you know, the very early times, I mean, it was kind of rudimentary. Uh, the stuff that you could get a signal back on were pretty big. I mean, they were trying to get planes essentially, trying to trying to see when planes or ships were coming towards yeah. you or missiles. It was a big war effort, obviously. Yeah, big war effort, which amazing how much technology evolves during a war and after. But uh, that was the main drive. And obviously, as technology evolves, so does radars. And with the development of like quartz crystals with technology coming out, you can get a more reliable time source because computers, watches, radars, they, they all have to have a reliable time source to measure things. The more reliable time source, the more accurate the measurement which is kind of the whole point of radars being used in ballistics is you're not measuring in milliseconds, you're measuring in microseconds. And you can track that bullet from the start all the way until it hits a target as long as you can re- get the return signal. Wow, so that, that's super impressive. So again, you're, you're getting uh, a return signal back. And if you have, like you said, the quartz crystal, you have a, a, an incredibly accurate way to measure time. If you know time, you can know velocity. Exactly. And, and it's, it all goes back to those, those two things, those fundamental things, velocity and time. And so where are we at now? How do we use, or we'll, we'll talk about our individual radar. I mean, there's no secret on the company that makes that. They are available for purchase. Um, you can buy one. Um, how do we use that tool um, to measure what we're using it for? Uh, what do we, and what do we do with it? Well, we got our radar in 2000, late 2013, 2014 timeframe. And to be clear and to be fair, we were not the first bullet company or ammo company to purchase a radar. No, no. I mean, like Jacob said, radars have been used in since, since World War II, really in like commercial small caliber ballistics. You had some companies that were that were using them definitely, you know, in the prior to 2010, but but not in a in a like heavy research and yeah. development. They capacity. were using them as a glorified chronograph. That would be a good way to put it. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's when very... I mean, essentially, it is. You know, I mean, yeah. it's giving you it's giving you velocity <laughs> versus time or velocity versus distance. I mean, it, it by definition of a chronograph, something that's measuring time. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a radar would technically fall under that umbrella, I guess, but. Um, there's more that we can do with it though. The way you use it really matters though. There's, there's a lot of things uh, that you can learn from it. Um, but the, what we were using it for early on was, was, you know, the long range shooting craze had that, that match had already lit the fire, you know? So, um, the demand for long range, small cow, long range shooting products was, was really ramping up. And so we were, we were working on projects involved in that, um, uh, what became, Yieldy match and and some of those we can do those you know at yeah a later those will time be to, separate podcasts yeah, but the ELD max that. the heat shield tip uh, the ELD yeah. yeah so we're we're building bullets that are meant to do long range jobs and you know in that time frame era that 2010 time frame um, ballistic coefficients the only show in town that's the only tool you have to try to get a 
ballistic prediction solution to tell you where the bullet's going to impact downrange. The problem was that the legacy method used within the industry to calculate a BC was based on that older technology of a chronograph, like a skyscreen chronograph. Well, you're limited with that, especially compared to a Doppler radar, in that to, to be able to measure with a chronograph, the bullet has to pass through the chronograph. So if I'm trying to get long-range numbers, that becomes more troublesome because now I have to make sure that the bullet passes through whatever instrument that is, whether it's a skyscreen or an acoustic microphone array, mm-hmm. um, both of which are just you know start and stop signs. Uh, I still have to weave the bullet through that, and, and I might have to be running cables for long distances and all these things. It's just very labor-intensive, and it's not an efficient way to gather that important data that you need which is what is the bullet doing at longer and longer distances that we're shooting it at because all of the established facilities within the small arms industry are based around a one two or three hundred yard range or tunnel Um, and so that's where all those bcs came from was those shorter ranges that that hornady had we have a 200 yard underground tunnel that that stuff was gathered in for all those years sure uh sierra bullets they have a 300 meter indoor tunnel um and and the 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 mass majority of all the other manufacturers out there have something similar to that. And so all the numbers that we were given were numbers that were valid for shooting out to one, two, three, four hundred yards. But the wheels fell off on the efficacy of that information when you went way outside of 400. So in comes this radar, this tool we have. And the first thing we did with it was try to get BC values at greater distances to provide the customer with a number that would work for them. Mm -hmm. Um, That led into the whole Ford off and, you know, like, five different podcast subjects by yeah. themselves, you know. <laughs> Which um, we will cover eventually, but... Yeah, so so the way we use the radar, though, maybe I'll talk about that, and then you can talk about how it works a little yeah. bit more, because um, it's really interesting. So the way we use the radar, we essentially set this thing up. Um, it It's like a, I don't know, foot and a half wide and two and a half foot tall kind of rectangle-shaped thing that sits in a cradle on a tripod. Some people know what it looks like. There's pictures of it, you know, on our yeah. website and stuff. And uh, you set the you set a rifle up next to it. There's an acoustic trigger, so those that use like the lab radar will be familiar with that. It just senses the sense of the shot, and uh, and as long as as long as you can keep that bullet in the beam of the radar, which Jacob, you can go into detail on that, but you could view it as a headlight, right? It's a beam, kind of same thing, light beam, but this is a radar beam. Um, as long as the bullet's in that beam, and as you said, Jacob, as long as it can see it and get a return signal off of it, you're measuring the bullet. So there's no more like I have to weave this thing through a, you know, chronograph sky screen at a yeah. thousand yards because I'm trying to get data. And oops, instead I hit the sky screen itself <laughs> and ruined it. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. So that's fantastic. So you get it set up and yeah, how does this thing actually work? Well, uh, so there's a lot of complex parts to a radar. But to dumb it down, it has an antenna, and that emits a radio wave. And it, the radar knows when it sent that radio wave, so it's looking for a return. So once it hits a target, which in our case would be a bullet. Or uh, anything else that happens to be suspended yeah, in the air. Yeah, exactly, uh, which we can talk about that later. <laughs> but uh, it'll hit that bullet, and it'll come back, and it gets the amount of time. And it'll also measure a frequency shift, just, just like a Doppler radar, every. Not everybody, but a lot of people know Doppler radar. Uh, perfect example. Uh, cop car goes by with the siren. It sounds higher pitched. Then when it goes by you, it starts getting lower pitched. The same thing happens with a radio wave. If it hits a moving target, the frequency that it gets back 
is a different frequency because the target oh, was moving. Okay. So that's how you get velocity out of it. So that's the Doppler portion of the Doppler radar. That is radar. the Doppler portion of the Doppler radar, exactly. Wow. So, okay, so it sends a signal out. Yep. The signal hits the moving bullet in the back and then sends it back to the antenna. Yep, and then the antenna, once it receives that signal, it will be able to tell, hey, I sent this frequency out and I got this frequency back. There's a difference between those two. It'll put it through a matched filter, essentially, which just matches it up to the frequency that it sent out. And it'll measure the difference of frequency, and it'll measure the difference in time, and that's how you get your distance and velocity. Wow. But it's not like this thing is just doing it, you know, one, two, three, four times. It's doing it over a, a very fast rate. We're talking every couple microseconds, it's sending a pulse out and getting one back. Whoa. Yep. That's a, so going back to the original chronographs and, and not, I said original out of context, going back to a early 2000s, you know, you buy the pro chrono from Midway USA and it's got the screens or whatever. And you shoot it through there. That's one individual data point. And this thing is sending a signal out that you have to measure in microseconds. Exactly. So over the course of a trajectory, how far are you guys tracking bullets downrange? That greatly depends on the size of the bullet and the caliber. Because uh, essentially, the bigger target you have, the better return you'll get. I mean, uh, a good way to describe it for people that are shooters is your laser rangefinder. You know, that thing's only good to so far if you... If you measure a bush, you might get 800 yards out of it with a good one. If you measure a, a grain silo, <laughs> probably get that sucker at 3,500 yards. You sure. Know? Mm -hmm. So the more reflective it is, and it's not necessarily reflective in a light context. It's reflective to a, a radio, radio wave. Uh. But uh, because they're both electromagnetic waves, light and radio waves, you can use light as a pretty good analogy or description for, for stuff. So. If uh, we can talk about clutter, you yeah, know, clutter and noise, those are two big things that kill how far you can detect a bullet, especially those little 22 bullets. Yeah. You might not be able to track that nearly as far as some of the big 30 cals or 338s, especially. Well, let's, let's paint a perfect picture here before we get into noise and clutter and okay. whatever else. So let's just say it's uh, a 338 two you know, 300 grain A tip, yep. giant bullet, uh, in a perfect world how far do you think you can track one of those things oh boy probably 2500 maybe yeah 25 yeah. plus with really optimum conditions yeah, 2500 yeah. yards yeah and yeah. you're getting you're getting a return data point every couple feet every foot every something like that well the sampling frequency is like what 240,000 it really depends on what you have for settings on the radar so if you're looking for getting a really long track we'll adjust the settings so that we take a measurement Slower. A little bit less frequently and what that does is the radar is able to stack some of those returns and put it into oh. what's called a range bin so it'll add all those together within you know uh, a, a certain amount of range whatever whatever the frequency is it depends on the uh, velocity of the bullet and your range bins and it will draw the amplitude of that signal up so that way you can determine it out of you know, outside of the clutter and the noise. Okay. Sort out the good from the bad. Exactly, yeah. yep. So you're, yeah, you're getting a data point for... Every, to your point though, to your question, um, we can do every inch if we want. Yeah. Or Whoa. less. I mean... That's the, remarkable. Uh, I mean, I think I had, there's one uh, slide I have in a presentation that I think there was 50, 
the way we had the radar set for that specific test, there was 52,000 data points for a 6.5 bullet track to, I want to say it was 12 or 1,400 yards. Remarkable. Yeah. So talk about data overload. Now we talked about conditions. What are the ideal atmospheric conditions to get a really good signal? Well, uh, ideally you won't have too much solar noise. So that'd be, you know, super sunny days or if there's solar flare activity, that can affect your, wow. your return signals. So you uh, want it cloudy? Uh, cloudy wouldn't be bad. Uh, you want a relatively consistent atmospheric condition from the point that you're starting to the, the end of your track. Okay. Uh, if any mirage that you see, that is typically thermal heat, which is also an electromagnetic, magnetic, uh, wow. noise coming off of the earth. Uh, anything in the bandwidth that the radar works in. So if you know, example, a, a weather radar happens to be the same frequency as our radar that we use for tracking bullets, then that'll show up in the track. Wow. Is it better to be cold or hot to track a bullet? Uh, it's better to be cold because okay. the low noise amplifier within the radar, there's a, uh, it's called Boltzmann's constant. It's basically the amount of thermal energy that, it, that can be affected as temperature goes up. So that is in uh, what's called the radar range equation. And oh. if you look that up, you'll, you'll be able to see it's like a, a K or something is, oh. is what describes it. Probably not going to look that up. I'll no, just take your no, word it's, for it. No, it's a big equation. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to go over that. That's too much. <laughs> so you want it yeah, consistent, maybe on the colder side, maybe on the slightly overcast side. Yeah. And uh, you're getting return data signals for thousands of yards in some instances with the right bullet in the right yep. environment. Mm-hmm. It's wild when you go from shooting over that Caldwell <laughs> 2003 chronograph that you talked about, and you're like, "Yeah, right on." You know, <laughs> yeah, like now I, I just know. measured my muzzle velocity. Yeah. Right? You go from that to like, "Oh, you don't want to know what your velocity was at 746.3 yards?" Let me tell you. You know, it'll tell you that. Wow, it's insane. I that, think one thing to add to that is those old sky screens. You know, they're anywhere from a foot to you know 10 feet apart. And you're measuring technically the average velocity between the two. You're not actually measuring the instantaneous velocity. So the radar gives you the instantaneous velocity. Yeah. Well, and you're, you're, yeah, you're 10 yards, 10 feet, five feet in front of the muzzle. You're not getting actual muzzle velocity either. Well, technically with the radar, you don't get actual muzzle velocity from the raw number. Okay. When we set the radar up, you'll set the offset of the barrel and the radar's center essentially and with that because the the radar doesn't know that you're over here unless you tell it mm-hmm. so it's only measuring the radial velocity so if there's any sort of angle between the gun and the radar has you to be have accounted for. you have to tell the radar that you started here and then that radar can back calculate your actual muzzle velocity wow uh, so for for those listening if if you were to if you set up with the gun next to the radar and your gun was like three feet to the left of the radar head and like a foot below center that's what jacob's talking about where yeah. like it needs to know where where the bullet is starting at in relation to the the radar yeah because your radial and your true velocity would be different another example would be if there's a cop on the side of the road the closer he is to the road the more accurate of a measurement he's going to get with his radar of how fast you're going because if he's you know way out almost 60 degrees off from your your uh, trajectory, then mm-hmm. he's getting the cosine of the angle is your true velocity. His radar gun might measure 45 miles an hour and you're going 
65 past him. He doesn't know. Mm. Interesting. So we touched on it briefly. I want to go back to uh, the noise and and just being a dirty signal, if you will, because yep. um, we talked about it. And these things are so hypersensitive that you're getting a ton of information back. What do you do with that? How do you filter it out? Well, uh, so in the radar, you have a, a essentially a signal noise ratio. And when you get that return on the screen, it'll tell you how much SNR, which is your signal noise ratio, that that dot had. But there might be a bunch of clutter still on the screen. Bugs. I mean, just anything that's in yep. the, if the it's beam. moving, yeah. Any, anything moving, it will, it will register a frequency shift because it moved. And that could potentially become clutter or noise on the radar. Okay. But generally, like in that example, yeah. let's say you got a group of mosquitoes or something right like for a crazy crazy <laughs> in nebraska i'm there's very familiar yeah. around here yeah. there's there's the size of doves you have to shoot them with a 12 gauge <laughs> yeah but the return signal from those mosquitoes and from the base of that 338 cal 300 grain a tip is totally different right mm-hmm. yeah. so you can sort out then you can still see what the mosquitoes were and what the bullet was and you can sort it out and say yes the this was the stronger signal. This is the bullet. Okay, yeah. so you can it presents that information to you on the on the screen. Yeah, I mean it doesn't like yeah. put little circles and say, "Hey, man, these are mosquitoes." Like, yeah, no. it, it probably can't measure the mosquitoes, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but yeah, for uh, an example that that works, that pretty much anything moving. You got trees, shrubbery. Uh, same thing. You shine a flashlight through a tree, you're probably not going to see the other side of it pretty good. A radar can't see through everything either. I mean, there's some things that. Uh, like uh, fiberglass, it can see through fiberglass pretty well. Otherwise, they wouldn't put that big fiberglass nose on the front of a jet because there's a big radar on the mm-hmm. end of the nose. You just don't see it. So there's some things that radar waves permeate pretty well, but things that are reflective it's or absorbent, it's, it's not going to get that return back or it's going to get a return back that's pretty big mm-hmm. and cause more clutter. So you look at the clutter and you can see, looking at the signal-to-noise ratio, what's real, what's not, and you can delete those points out of there to get it something usable. Yep, and the, the human factor for it adds quite a bit as well because y- you can usually tell there's a pretty nice line that that's your bullet. Obviously, the stuff up here, the stuff down there, that's that's probably not your bullet. Yeah. So you, you just have to kind of set your parameters on the radar around that so that way you can isolate just your bullet and ignore everything else. So in uh, kind of a quick summary here, of, of an underlying tone that I've got from you guys. The radar's cool. You can use it for a lot of stuff. If you don't have the right people setting up, operating the radar, then that radar's just a really big paperweight because it sounds like there's so much that goes into it without the training, without the knowledge on how to use it, how to set it up, and, and how to use the data that it gives you. Um, that data can be as useful or as useless, can be as, you know, as uh, worthless or priceless as you make it, uh, all based on who you have operating the radar. 100%. I mean, the operation of the radar is really, really easy. Like, you physically set it up, you plug it in, you have to have a couple little settings right in the software, you flip a switch on, and you start shooting, and it records. So (laughs) that's pretty dang easy. The, the, to your point, the, the validity of what that tool can do for you comes with the people that are interacting with that data that know what they're looking for and where to look and, and to sort out the, 
the signal from the noise, the wheat from the chaff, right? Because if you don't, if you don't know those things and you go in with a, you know, a biased opinion of what the result's going to be, let's say we're doing some R&D test and we think that sample A is going to be better than sample B on some metric, right? Just arbitrarily. And we, we're pretty confident that's what's going to happen. We're just going to go test it to validate it. Well, if we go test sample A and we find out that sample A is actually better than sample B like we thought, but it's in that area of signal to noise where stuff's getting pretty dicey on sorting out what's real or not. Mm-hmm. You know, some people may say, well, I already knew that, you know, sample A is better. So, and I mean, yeah, that data is a little bit noisy, but it shows that it's better there too. So we're just going to go with it. Yeah. I mean, confirmation it, it, bias. It, yeah. It yeah. really depends on the people that are, that are doing it. And our tendency is to sacrifice some good data just to make sure there is no bad data, right? Yep. So on so the you, tail end of where you you're could think of it, it like a, a gradient, right? Like the early on, the signal to noise ratio is really high. There's no question on what's the bullet and what's not. As that thing travels downrange, you're talking about something that's tried trying to get a signal off of a, a pencil eraser at a mile. Yeah. Right. That's traveling thousands of feet a second. Good like, luck. That's yeah. kind of a tough nut to crack, right? Yep. And it's so small. So, um, so the, you're going to get some noise in there. And so our standpoint is, is we would rather, we would rather sacrifice some known good data to guarantee that all that bad stuff is gone than try to stretch out and get every little piece of arguable data that's there. Because if some of that noise gets in and you believe that the result is 100% real for all of it, that can lead you astray. Mm-hmm. In in what you think you know, yeah. yeah, I could I could go through all day and you know, oh, this dot that was the bullet, that dot that was the bullet too, and and pick whatever I want out of it once that S and R drops out. But there's no guarantee on what's real or what's not, so it it's a lot safer on our end to just cut that stuff out. We know this is really good data. Let's go with this. We can try to uh, maybe on another could day where conditions are a bit more favorable try to get those longer tracks and see what's going on or maybe we just need to shoot the bullet a little bit slower or out of a different gun so we get a lower velocity to see what goes on down there yeah so we we spent a lot of time talking about the history of ballistics chronographs in general the doppler radar now this is going to be a completely separate podcast uh, several of them like Jaden had mentioned <laughs> but that doppler radar and learning how to use it and how to use it, how to use it well and then how to look at things in a very non-pretentious way with no confirmation bias to look at the we know this is factually the data get rid of all the noise elsewhere it was instrumental in the development of the ELDX the ELD match the heat shield tip the A tip and pretty much every new product bullet wise that we've come out with since we purchased the radar yes that's and so yeah that radar was very expensive i don't know north <laughs> of a hundred thousand dollars and that's a big investment for a company that at the time one wasn't as large as we are now and two there was no guarantee that there was going to be a direct return on that investment and luckily for for us there was a huge return on that investment uh that that big initial cost i'm sure that hurt uh thanks mr hornady if you're listening but uh the the products that we've released subsequent to its purchase have been amazing and they're they're just better products there's just no way around it they are just better and they all owe that to the use of the doppler radar and then 
another completely separate series of podcasts will be Fordoff. Now, for those unfamiliar with Fordoff, Fordoff stands for Four Degrees of Freedom, and it is our ballistic calculator. It's free of charge. You can use it on our website. We really recommend you download the app on your smartphone. They have it in a Kestrel as well, and that owes itself also to the use of Doppler radar, and that is because it uses the Doppler-derived drag curve, the CD versus Mach curve of your individual bullet and all of its mass properties instead of using what was the standard, which is ballistic coefficient. And uh, it's just been amazing to see that that one leap of faith to purchase the Doppler radar and hope you guys can figure out how to use it. Uh, and then now, you know, you're starting to, you, you add members to the team that are, that is their bread and butter. That is what they do. For the listeners unfamiliar with Jacob Morrow, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a uh, ballistic engineering technician, he is the Doppler radar guy. That's graduated high school and devoted his life to Doppler radar, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. For a little backstory on that. So I had met Jaden when I was in high school and I asked him like, hey man, I really like ballistics and stuff. You know, what do I need to do to, to get here and, and do that stuff for, for my job? And he said, oh, join the Air Force, you know, get a job that, you know, applicable outside of the Air Force. And I ended up being a, a radar analyst for the Air Force. I wor- worked at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for four years and it just so happened that I was in the Air Force when Hornady got the radar and Jaden was asking me questions about radar stuff and it worked out that when my enlistment ended out, I came out here and worked in the downstairs lab for a few years and now I help out with R&D. That's just, yeah. a pretty cool story. <laughs> <laughs> that in and of itself is a, is a super cool story and it, 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 it obviously worked out for both parties, but you don't come across uh, a knowledge base in Doppler radar, or at least, you know, here in central Nebraska, there's not a lot of Doppler radar guys walking around. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing to have you on our team that that is your life's work so far. And as a young man that, you know, that has that knowledge, you've got a long career ahead of you in the study of ballistics. And, uh, that's, that's just great stuff all the way around. Yeah. And, and it's, it's cool that we're still learning things. Oh yeah. I mean, we learn yeah. stuff all the time about it. I mean, this field is 500 years old, right? We kind of talked about that in the beginning. We're still uncovering rocks where there's something under there that nobody's seen before. They didn't know that that thing did that. And, yeah. and I don't know any other way to describe it besides cool. And then you, you bring guys like Jacob onto the team that, that, that have a level of expertise that that results in new discoveries, right? It's a new perspective. It's a new skill set. It's a it's a new way to do things. And when you when you're constantly incorporating those things into the team, you you learn things in a way that a, a static team that gets stagnant, they're just looking at the same things all the time, doing the same things the same way all the time. You you don't have that turnover and that freshness, and and I think that hurts the R and D process. And we're really fortunate here that we can can get guys like Jacob and yeah and people that are able to to help continue to push those limits. Yeah. And and I like how you said that uh because yeah, we're we're grateful that it worked out and it's working out here at Hornady, but we are all avid users at heart. In in our normal lives outside of work, we're still studying ballistics, we're still shooting stuff, and as an industry, it's amazing to see that this is advancing forward not just at Hornady but elsewhere that that you know, there's uh 
a ton of, of new information out there that's just waiting to be discovered. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you stay passionate about it and you get the right members and you let people work their passion, um, there's, yeah, it's amazing. It's like a, an undiscovered frontier almost. It's like outer space, but in the world of external ballistics, yeah. which is uh, just great stuff all the way around. Well, you would think after 500 years and guys like Galileo <laughs> and Newton and all this, it would just be solidified and done and, mm-hmm. you know, we're done here, go home. But it's not, you know, us, yeah. us dumb kids in Nebraska are still figuring stuff out. So. Yeah. With nothing but a clock. That's right. Measuring velocity. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, with how much advancements have come in 500 years and radar technology is only a hundred some years old. I mean, down the road, we might see more advancements in radar. I mean, look, we've got lab radar out that yeah. a personal radar for your own muzzle velocities that didn't exist 15 yeah. years ago and coincidentally that's the same company that manufactures our big radar yeah yeah, yeah. infinition out of canada mm-hmm. eh? yeah yep uh, and yeah it's exactly right i mean you used to be the standard pro chrono was the standard shoot through and, and that it's applicable for a lot of stuff and it was useful for a long time uh, but yeah in short order you can buy your own personal radar which is, it, it, I mean, in the world of, of spending money, it's relatively affordable. Yeah. And yeah, a bunch of people have them. And who's to, who's to say in yeah, the next five to 10 years, what will be available to not only us on a large scale, but also the individual shooter on the smaller scale? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, no sense. Uh, or it's, it's just amazing to think about stuff like that, especially when you, like you had mentioned, Jaden, yeah, it's 500 years old. That's nothing in, in the grand scheme of, you know, humans on earth. Right. Uh, it's just remarkable. Did right. we did we miss anything on the lower level of talking about radar? Um, I don't want to get into anything you know regarding uh, drag curves and forward off and and the use of ballistic coefficient versus drag uh, coefficient. Um, that's a a totally worthwhile topic, and we will absolutely cover that. Um, I think it's just going to be a little bit more deep than we should cover here. Did we hit everything on what a radar? is some of the history, how we use it, and and basically what it's used for? I think so. I mean, kind of summarize, summarize, time is what's important, right? How much time was the bullet exposed to gravity? How much time was it exposed to wind or, or whatever? It's time. What defines the time is the velocity. That's why the velocity is important. And we've lived with this evolution of measurement tools uh, to measure velocity that gets us to the point now at Doppler radar where we're dealing with tons of information and tons of data. And what that means is we can get really good velocities. Well, what happens when you get really good velocities? You get really good times. What happens when you get really good times? You get really good predictions of gravity and wind deflection and all those things that happen to your bullet as it's on its way to the target. So it kind of goes up and then it comes back down. But I mean, that's what that means to the listeners is the fact that Jacob's describing how advanced this radar is compared to the old wood block ballistic pendulum. What that means is that you are getting so much good information that your end result when you squeeze that trigger is more hits on target. Yeah, that's what it's all about. And we're not measuring once per shot anymore. We're measuring thousands of times. So we get that much more information every shot. Awesome. Well, I hope uh, for our listeners that that followed us along on this uh, technical journey of Doppler radar, I hope that that really lays the groundwork for the continued study and a subsequent podcast of the ballistic coefficient and and how far that was advanced and then some of its inherent deficiencies and how a 
a Doppler radar and the use of, of Ford off or, or Doppler drive drag curves can pick up where those deficiencies left off and again, put more rounds on target. Absolutely. Awesome. Guys, I, I learned a ton. I'm going to go take a nap, digest some of this information, <laughs> maybe listen to it back again, uh, try to take some notes, but I appreciate you guys. You know, I know you're busy and I, it's just great that you're willing to not only share this information with me, but also everybody else out there in podcast land. Yeah. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Guys, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. It was, it was dense, but it was incredibly educational and uh, hopefully you're looking forward to learning more about the Doppler radar and Hornady Fordoff. And if so, stand by. We'll get those out to you as soon as we can, and we'll catch you on the next one.